The Family History Detectives podcast is a behind-the-scenes look at the investigative use of genealogy and genetic genealogy to solve mysteries. From stolen babies to unidentified remains to catching murderers, genealogy is becoming one of the best forensic tools available for shining a light on previously hidden truths. I'm Allison Peacock. I'm a forensic genealogist, or an investigative genealogist, if you will. There's actually a lot of debate about those two terms because this is a brand new field. I'm coming to you from beautiful upstate New York, where I live in a 100-year-old farmhouse with my friend Adam Nury, my son-in-law. Say hi, Adam. Hi, Adam. (laughs) Adam is going to be piping in from time to time because he likes to hear my stories. So here we go. What I do is use genetic genealogy to solve mysteries of all kinds, and we're going to talk about some of those mysteries in this series. We're going to talk about both the field of investigative genealogy, and we'll talk about some of my adventures and the more interesting cases that I'm working on. If you're new to the idea of using genealogy to solve mysteries, let's look at what genetic genealogy is. It's actually pretty simple. It's using the science and the art of genealogy, using DNA and genetics, to investigate identities that are unknown. And those identities that are unknown can take many different forms. They may be criminal suspects, or John and Jane Doe's, or the biological parents of an adopted child, or even paternity for children of unacknowledged affairs. Basically, if it has to do with human beings, and it has to do with unknown identity, then genetic genealogy is your tool. Interesting. What about those do-it-yourself DNA test kits that I've seen advertised? Is that sort of the same thing? Exactly. That's one of the tools that we use. You see, about five years ago, several different direct-to-consumer companies began releasing what we all see on TV. They're called autosomal DNA tests. These are the DNA tests that tell you everyone that you're related to, all of your cousins, whether it's somebody you knew from family picnics as a child to somebody that maybe only shares an eighth great-grandparent. It's everyone that you're related to. So, yes, it's 23andMe, it's Ancestry DNA, My Heritage DNA, or Family Tree DNA. They're the tests that you see on Amazon or on Facebook or on TV. So as the use of these consumer tests has grown, the companies have built up large public databases. Ancestry has its own database of members and genetic identities. MyHeritage has its own database. And so people that are looking for lost family members or trying to solve mysteries in their own family tree or forensic investigators like me trying to solve a crime have realized that by looking at those databases and seeing who the matches are for an unknown person that you're trying to identify can lead you to the answers. And this is all done starting with a raw DNA sample. What a really incredible resource to have access to all of that information. It is, it's interesting. How did you get into doing this type of work in genealogy as a career? 
Actually, you know what? I get asked that all the time. I get asked that almost as much as I get asked why I moved from Texas to New York, but that's another story. So how did I go from a 15 or 20 year passionate hobby to an investigative genealogy day job? Well, mostly I got into this kind of genealogy because I had my own mysteries to solve. And that's probably why a lot of people get into this work. We do it because we like to help people too. My journey started about 20 years ago when I started trying to fill out my family tree on my mom's side. Because my dad's side, the Peacock family, has been really well documented all over the country due to the work of a very active surname organization for for the name Peacock. So there were no big mysteries there for me. But my mother's family, the Reeds of Pine Bluff, Arkansas, that family was always a little mysterious and intriguing to me because my maternal grandparents died when I was in grade school, and I had great loving memories of them. But, you know, once they were gone, there were kind of a gap that I needed to fill in. I had heard bits and pieces of things, you know, from my mom and from my aunts. I heard something about a Cherokee grandmother. I heard about some German heritage, and I thought... Wow, if I'm part German and Cherokee and I haven't even known that all these years, you know, I need to learn more about that. Oh, yeah. Tell me more about how that process worked. Lo and behold, within a couple of weeks of looking into my German Native American reeds, I discovered the Scotch-Irish reeds of South Carolina. Discovering this error in what had been passed down to us did not make me very popular amongst my mother's family members. But you know what? I had the DNA results, and I had very clear historical records. You know, the truth is the truth. Very quickly, we discovered that there was a mystery in my mother's family. Perhaps this was part of the reason why the truth had been misreported. I'll get into that more in our next episode about why people do this. Essentially, my beloved grandfather, my mother's father, had a grandfather of his own that was the son of a single mother, whose surname is the one that had been carried by the family ever since. So that Reed name came from a woman, not a man. I think the way my great aunt put it when I started doing all this and stopped by to visit her, she said, yeah, there's some missing records on that side of the family, I think. And that was it. She poured our tea and went on and didn't say any more about it. When I found an 1870 census record for York County, South Carolina, with two Reed women and six Reed children with no fathers in the home, I was captivated. I had to figure it out. The sisters had clearly been in the home adjacent to them in the previous census, living with their parents, all with the surname Reed. So I had to know what was going on. I mean, I needed to know the story of my own family. For the next 15 years after finding that census, I studied that family and every other family in York County, South Carolina, to figure out who the fathers of those six little boys were. And a few years later, lo and behold, enter DNA. It was the perfect tool. But discovering the truth about ancestors that were born in 1870 is not a beginner's DNA lesson. Suffice it to say that the 15-year odyssey of working out that particular case had me completely captivated. I would even call myself maybe just a smidge obsessed. And every single time I talked to mother on the phone, she said, Allison, you should do genealogy for a business. You're so good at it. Never mind that I had a successful marketing career, but you know, hey, sometimes mothers really do know best, right? Concurrent with my investigation of my mother's family, there was something a little closer to home. My two youngest children were born in the 1990s. 
Their father's Mexican-American, born in Mexico and raised by a family in California, never knowing anything about his biological heritage, like many adopted children. As meaningful as family is to me, and as well-documented as my family's and my first husband's families were, I always felt bad that my younger two children only had half of a tree. Their dad was it on his side. So, of course, I wanted to find out more for them, you know, because his heritage was their heritage. So we started when our first child was just days old. In the wee hours of the night, as we were up with her colic, walking her along the house, covered up with a blanket at three in the morning, I started whispering to him about, well, have you ever thought about trying to find your biological family? So hold on a second. We're talking 1990s at this point? Yep. How does one even go about finding that sort of information in the pre-internet era. It was interesting. It, it was kind of fun. So in the 1990s, you're right, you can't get on the internet and look things up like we can today. So we began the old way. We sent people to civil registries in Mexico. We sent people to the adoption court in Mexico, and we found some amazing records. In fact, we had records that captured my imagination so much when we found them that I almost named our second child after his grandmother. Because we had found my husband's mother and his grandmother's names on his birth certificate. But I ended up having a boy, and he wasn't too keen on being called Magdalena. Um, But actually, to this day, our daughter still calls him Maggie. (laughs) That's adorable. To go from there to finding a document with some names on it to finding living people in Mexico, that actually took another 20 years. But thanks to DNA and thanks to online record digitization, thank you, Ancestry and Family Search, we got there. We made progress and I built out this beautiful tree, you know, for 400 years. But we really, really wanted to find living people. So I eventually networked with people on Facebook to find out about a Guadalajara Mexican newspaper archive where we found marriages and birthdays for all of his cousins. And so then we were able to find those people on Facebook. So, you know, you're talking going to the little hut in Mexico where we can call somebody and send them to the registry to look up records for us to going and finding things online and finding people on Facebook. So wide, wide experience there. So long story short, about three years ago, we were able to take the kids to Mexico to meet his long lost family. He has a huge family in Mexico of about 50 cousins, aunts and uncles, and he's got four siblings and they welcomed him with open arms. So he's got a much bigger family than I do now. So, and he likes to rub it in and tell me that all the time. If you want to know more about that story, it's actually pretty interesting. You can go to our YouTube channel, the Family History Detectives channel, or familyhistorydetectives.com. In fact, on our blog, there's some articles, in particular Izzy's story, which I wrote for my daughter in her honor. After all those nights staying up with her and her colic, she actually was the one that got me started on international research and DNA. Basically, these several things in my own background lit a fire. I've always been someone that wanted to solve mysteries and wanted to get to the bottom of things. So when a tool like genetic genealogy comes along, it's just the perfect tool. And now I can safely say that there is no reason to let secrets and undiscovered truths affect people's lives. Whether you're someone who isn't sure of your own background or you're the family of a crime victim, we all deserve the closure that knowing the truth can give us. And that's why I do this. 
I believe we all have a kernel inside of us that wants to know who we are and why we're here. At least we do when we get a certain age. My kids grew up always wondering more about their dad's side of the family, but if he had not been adopted, they probably wouldn't have been thinking about it until after they had kids or grandkids. Some people doesn't hit them until they're retired, and then suddenly they want to know about grandma's trip over from Poland, or the call I get even more than that is, where is the Native American great-grandmother I've been told about all my life? I literally get that call at least once a week. I think everybody deserves to have these answers when they're ready for them, whether it's when you're 20 or when you're 60. And I really believe that the families of murder victims and the families of missing persons deserve this. They deserve closure. And if we have the tools to give them answers, we need to give them answers. I really don't know of anything else I could do that would both satisfy my curiosity and allow me to use my skills to help people. And that's why I do this. I do it to help people. I do it to shine a light on the truth. It's just been too easy in previous generations for the truth to get hidden. And we don't have to let that happen anymore. You know, I shudder to think what the father of my great, great, great grandfather thinks about the fact that I've posted his name now in my family tree. But that's what genetic genealogy does. It shines a light on hidden truths. Wow, that's quite a path from a hobby to a career. That's pretty amazing. What projects are you working on currently? The last year and a half uh, has really seen a change in my genealogy career. I turned my skills and experience towards working with law enforcement as opposed to working with individuals and families. I work on criminal cases, solving wrongs against the community, not just personally for people, but crimes against society, you know, for bigger issues. And that's something that this tool allows us to do today that we couldn't do not even five years ago. I had a mentor recently who liked to say, if you did something really bad a few decades ago and you never got caught, watch out, buddy, because we're coming for you. Yeah, get them. And we are. Just a few months ago, I had the privilege of hearing firsthand from a detective about a SWAT team knocking on a 76-year-old Indiana man's door and leading him away in handcuffs for the brutal stabbing of a teenager 45 years ago. The neighbors all thought he was a really nice guy until the SWAT team showed up. Where else in forensics can you get that kind of job satisfaction as a genealogist? In addition to working for law enforcement agencies, sometimes criminal cases are brought to me by the victims. There is a mass epidemic out there that a lot of people don't know about that I fell right into a couple of years ago. In the late 1970s until about 1990, A tremendous number of babies were adopted from Brazil to European countries and to the United States. There are a lot of people out there right now that were born in Brazil that want to know more about their heritage. And they're starting with either nothing or less than nothing because of so much subterfuge and lies. There's literally a black market for these babies. I had a client who'd been born in Brazil and was adopted by an American. That case became an odyssey, and it's still a campaign close to my heart. It gave me a deep dive into the really horrible underbelly of commercialism and adoption, especially international adoption, and what happens when people get greedy. They think they're giving a poor child a better life, but they're actually taking the child away from their parents. During that time, from, say, about 1978 to 1990, when it kind of became something that the government decided to stop, There was an elaborate but unorganized network of clinics, doctors, attorneys, people that worked in hospitals, state officials, you name it. 
a massive amount of people that discovered they could make money by taking babies away from poor women in Brazil and selling them to wealthy Westerners. My client's mother even faked a C-section scar. She went to a doctor and said, please put a scar on my body that makes it look like I just had a C-section so that she could get past immigration and take her baby home from Brazil. Talking about this case online and seeking to network with people in Brazil on Facebook, I actually stumbled into a forensic genealogy group and began talking about it. And that conversation led to a contract with a company that worked exclusively with law enforcement doing genetic genealogy cases. So I spent the past year consulting for that company under contract and working with both an amazing team of genealogists and some amazing law enforcement clients. There are dedicated detectives out there that will do anything to solve crimes for victims' families. These guys were willing to think outside the box and let us take a little tiny minuscule sample of decades-old genetic material and send it off to a lab and hope for the best. And 9.9 times out of 10, we had tremendous results even for samples as old as 65 years and as small as 30 picograms. Do you know how much 30 picograms is, Adam? I have no idea what a picogram even is. (laughs) It's actually a trillionth of a gram. So three trillionths of a gram is what we solved a case with. That's an insanely small amount. Yeah, it is. And, you know, we couldn't have even done that a year or two ago. It's it's new. You know, the DNA genome sequencing technologies are, are just improving every day. Once you're able to call someone, you know, especially a hardworking detective that has worked for years to try to put away a murderer and has no clue who he's looking for, and you say, hey, go get a cigarette butt from this guy, follow him around, that's your murderer, and they do, and the next morning they send you back a note that says, it's a match, all in capital letters, that's a feeling unlike anything I've ever experienced before. To this day, that kind of call still makes the hair stand up on my arm. I mean, every time. It just never gets old. It's a real privilege to feel that feeling on a regular basis for the past year. Whether it was me or whether it was one of the team members I was working with, we all felt such an amazing sense of accomplishment when that happened. What I'm doing right now arose out of that experience working as a contract investigator and operations manager for Identifinders. During that contract, one of the last cases that I did has evolved somewhat into something that I'm still working on today. One of the other team members and I worked together to identify a John and Jane Doe who were found in Houston in 1981. In the 1980s, they were known around Houston as Romeo and Juliet, but no one really knew until we identified them that they were actually a husband and wife. You may have seen some of that in the news, or there's quite a bit about it on our website. In October of last year, a team member and I did this joint investigation on the John and Jane Doe. They were a man and woman found murdered on January 12, 1981, in the woods outside of Houston. For a long time on the internet, they were known as the Harris County Does, and speculation abounded for decades about who they were. All over the internet, so many theories about who they were and who they might be. And to be the person 40 years later to give Jane Doe back her name is something I'll never forget. That's incredible. Wow. How special. Yeah, it was. I had the privilege of calling the family members of this couple and letting them know that we had found their loved ones. The first call I made was actually to the sister of the John Doe. His name was Harold Dean Klaus, Jr., And my colleague had identified him, but it was my job to call the family. 
And so Dean, or Junior to his family, was a young carpenter from New Smyrna Beach, Florida, who had gone to Texas to create a better life for his young wife and baby. But when I spoke to his sister, I didn't yet know that the woman we had found was his wife, let alone that they had a baby. And she said the family had been told that they joined a cult and not to look for them at all. So to hear that they'd actually been murdered all those years ago was shocking. And that's a long story that we'll get into later. In fact, we're deep into production on a big project with Apple and Fox on that case. So please watch for that this summer or join our mailing list to hear about it. So, Allison, you were telling me earlier about another huge revelation during that phone call with Dean's family. What was that? Oh, yeah. Dean's sister proceeded to tell me that she had been praying for a really long time to get answers to what happened to her brother because her mother was getting up in years. And the mother's 80 years old and wanted to know about what happened to her junior. And being the person that can tell someone the answer to their greatest prayer is just a privilege I'll never take for granted. But just seconds later, I was dumbfounded and breathless when she said, well, what about the baby? And my jaw dropped. I said, what baby? And lo and behold, we found out that Dean and Tina had a one-year-old daughter named Holly Marie. That's crazy. Yeah. One-year-old daughters don't just go missing, right? Usually not, no. They don't suddenly get taken in by somebody else without the neighbors noticing or without children's services being called. So I immediately realized that something sinister had to have happened. I mean, I didn't even know how to form sentences about it. I was so shocked. I can only imagine what that would have felt like. Yeah. It felt like a huge responsibility. To be the person that just found out that there's a missing child and I've got all this DNA from her parents and access to all these databases, I immediately realized that I needed to take on the search for Holly Marie. There it is, the call to action. Yeah, exactly. So I decided I wasn't going to leave this family hanging. It wasn't a part of my contract to identify their child or look for her or whatever. But, you know, what are you going to do? Say, oh, sorry about the baby. See ya. I mean. Yeah, you can't just leave that big of a bombshell just lingering out there. No. Yeah. So I immediately get, I I mean, just the next day we were sending Ancestry DNA kits. I was sending them links where to buy kits and we were uploading their DNA in every DNA database we could find. We've not found her yet, but the prayer is that she's going to wonder someday who she is if she was raised by someone that ever let her know she wasn't their biological child, and she's going to test her DNA. And that's probably the only way we'll ever find her. Deciding to work with the family and advocate for them, we went to the National Center for Missing and Exploited Children, and they helped develop an age progression portrait of her. And arising out of all this, we actually had several women who saw the story in the news, who heard about the case online who thought they might be Holly. And so just like the fact that I wasn't going to leave this family hanging, I can't leave these potential Hollies hanging either. Even though I was pretty sure that none of the women that we'd spoken to were Holly, they all had compelling stories. And, you know, they struck that chord in me that believed they needed to have the answers. Well, like you said earlier, you believe that everyone deserves to know the truth. Exactly. When it comes to stolen children, there's actually nobody in the world that does a better job than NECMAC, the National Center for Missing and Exploited Children. But I found out from working with them that that organization can really only work with people that have open law enforcement cases. Maybe if they have a compelling reason enough to have them help open a law enforcement case, it could happen. 
But these women that came to me, a lot of them had abusive backgrounds. A lot of them were hiding from people that had mistreated them. And the last thing they wanted to do is go talk to law enforcement. Right. That's a big step and potentially a big risk for someone in that situation. Yeah. The women that came to me were all concerned about privacy. And they also were extremely worried about the family and getting their hopes up. I could have easily found someone that wanted to exploit the thing. You know, I'm, I'm Holly. I might be Holly. And, but they all said, you know what? I don't know if I am, and I don't want to get the family's hopes up. And they, without exception, all said that to me. That's a pretty huge statement in and of itself, that there wasn't anybody searching for a spotlight. They were just looking for answers, and they were being conscientious of their family members at the same time. Yeah. I don't know what it is about going through that kind of childhood, but they all had huge hearts. And they also had really horrible stories. In particular, one of them was dropped off in the middle of the night in Florida in the same town where the cult members that may have had something to do with Dean and Tina's death returned Dean's car to his mother. And she was the right age, you know. Just completely by coincidence. Yeah, by coincidence. Daytona Beach, Florida. What are the odds? That's crazy. Yeah, who's going to ignore that? So, you know, I'm helping several of them figure out who they are. And that's become a project. And thankfully, we've had a few clients that want to help support that. And we've been able to get the funds together to help with some of that DNA testing. That's amazing. Yeah. Well, it just goes to what we do. You know, we solve mysteries using genealogy. If there's anybody that I can help with that, I do. So what else do you have coming up with Family History Detectives? We've talked about a lot of the things that are keeping me busy right now. We're also doing a lot of PR, trying to keep Holly's story out there. As I said, we're collaborating with a Fox journalist on an Apple podcast that's going to come out next summer. I'm really excited about that. Christina Corbin is an amazing journalist with Fox News who is working with Apple and Spotify on a 10-episode series about the case. The whole season is going to be devoted to it, both the story of the murder of Dean and Tina as well as the search for Holly. For the listeners out there who might want to help or get involved in some way, what can they do? If you're listening to these stories and you want to help get this technology into the hands of people that need it, you want to help get victims' families some closure, you want to help identify children that may have been stolen, this work is not cheap. It's very expensive. So we started a GoFundMe. It's called the Hope for Holly Marie Project. I'm doing that with Holly Marie's family, and they came up with the name, came up with the idea, the blessing to do this. So there's a link on our website at familyhistorydetectives.com and on our law enforcement site at fhdforensics.com. You'll find the Hope for Holly page, and there's a link to a GoFundMe. Every dime that's donated goes right into either helping find Holly or helping fund someone else's case. So we really appreciate our clients that have stepped up to help fund that for us. And there's always a need for more. So yeah, if you feel called to do that, we'd love to have your support. That's really wonderful that you've had such a show of support so far. That's really excellent. Yeah, we really have. It's the people that I've helped solve mysteries for have wanted to come help support and pay for other people to do it. It's, it's, it's amazing. Sure, that makes sense. They're the ones who most want to give back and help others. Yeah, yeah. I have some amazing clients. What about if there's a listener out there who maybe suspects they themselves might be a lost or stolen child? Is that someone who can reach out to family history detectives for help? Well, sure. I would always try to help anybody that reaches out to us. But I will say again that the National Center for Missing and Exploited Children is amazing. They have a 24-hour hotline. 
you can reach them by calling 800-843-5678, or you can go to missingkids.org. They have posters and age progression drawings of a lot of missing children. And if you're not ready for that step and you want to do some genetic genealogy on your own, we're actually happy to help so people can visit our website and send us a note. One last question. Maybe this is a little strange, but what if there's a murder or a cold case of some kind in my community? Can I reach out? Can I get help through Family History Detectives? Absolutely. If there's a murder case that has gone unsolved for years in your community, or maybe just one that you know about online, we are actively looking for law enforcement agencies that need our expertise. So if you think there's a case that has some DNA evidence, you can email us at dna at fhdforensics.com, and we'll take a look at it. Excellent. That's a great resource for anyone listening who might be looking to unravel some mysteries in their own family tree. That's what it's all about. (laughs) So I guess that's about it for this introductory episode. I thought this was going to be a primer on what genetic genealogy is. And I, of course, got into some storytelling. I have so many stories. If this kind of work interests you and you want to help us solve a cold case, there are many agencies that need your help funding this expensive technology. I invite you to visit our website and look for our GoFundMe links to fund the kind of case that you're interested in. We also accept donations via PayPal. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time. The Family History Detectives Podcast is a production of FHD Forensics, written by Allison Peacock with music and audio production by Adam Nury. For more information or to contact FHD Forensics, please follow us online at familyhistorydetectives.com.